0: All right, we are into it today. So we are in uh, chapter 6, verse 9, beginning. So we kind of had a brief uh, break as I was gone last week. And uh, so we're kind of picking up in the seals where we we started from, uh, remember the the first four seals, we talked about the, the downfall of Rome um and uh or i should say the decline of rome not the downfall of rome but the the decline over this period and we ended in um we ended uh, in the what we call the crisis of the 3rd century the 200s and and the famine and the uh, the Cyprian plague and just a uh, wiping out you know maybe a fourth of the population of an entire uh, uh an entire empire uh, how how dramatic that is So we are in chapter 6, and we're going to go through these next couple of seals here. Uh, Let's start with the the fifth. It says, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said... To them that they would have to rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. So, uh, what is of note that is different in this seal uh, than than the others? Do you, do you notice something slightly different in the structure? Do you notice there's not a lot of symbolic language here? There's not a lot of interpretation for us to do. We don't have uh, white horses and we don't have, you know, bows and all these different things that, that were pictures. He kind of comes out and just tells us what this is. So so it's nice. <laughs> I don't have to do a lot of work. All right. Um, so he just tells us, listen. This we have an alt the altar here is the only picture, really, of, of in white robes, uh, is the only picture, uh, symbolically. But uh, these are martyrs, okay? That's that's pretty simple. We talked about martyrs. What does the word martyr mean? What does the word martyr mean? It does not mean someone who's died, it means a witness, that's all it means. And um, but to be a witness was so closely tied at this point in time with death that it just became that the word transitioned its definition. Um, So there's a lot of people. Well, he's a martyr. Well, I don't know. What did he testify about? (laughs) He didn't testify about anything. Then he is not a martyr. He's just a guy who died. So we want to talk about this altar, the place of sacrifice. Right. That's what the altar was. That's kind of what it looked like. Only a, a, a poor rendition of it. Uh, it is what I could do in uh, 3D paint. It, uh, but that, that would kind of do it. Altars were large. Right, They weren't a little thing, you know, a little stone, kind of like a communion table or something like that. They actually had steps that went up to them. Um, and so where are these souls? right? It says under it. Now, I don't think that means that it means that was actually literally sitting on top of them, right? Um, But I think it's more referencing at the foot of, right? They were um, underneath where they were going to be, either just had been or going to be burnt or however the picture is. And and I think that the the reference here is to that they are recently slain, right? Now, recently, we kind of have to understand the way time works, God has a different time frame, right? For us, recent is, hey, this happened in the last week. God, not so much. <laughs> so, um, I want to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things about these newly slain here. And we're going to talk about a guy named Diocletian, because this is important. This is where we've kind of ended the fourth seal It's just prior to this guy. Um, we talked about the Cyprian plague and we talked about all, remember all those emperors and extra credit. If you can remember how many emperors we went through in a short period of time. Good. Cause I don't remember either. So I'd have to get my notes from it. It was like 30 something emperors uh and only a few died of natural deaths in a, in like a 90 year period, right? Their, their average, you know, the, the average You know, reign of of somebody like that. You're you're talking, you know, a year and a half for an average reign of an emperor. Um, So, uh, so a guy by the name of Numerian dies in 284, and that ends that period. He's the last one to to really uh, have these uh, to be a part of that section. It's kind of it's a nice clean cut time. And this guy uh, comes to power in 284. Now, um, to talk about the fulfillment of this, uh, up to this point, then, to look back in time, you remember the emperor who kind of started Christian persecutions. Who's the first one? Very famous guy. Nero. Nero. Okay. So Nero started his persecutions. Nero started off actually pretty decent. He didn't. Uh, if, if you remember, Paul was in prison, right? At the end of the book of Acts, he didn't die there. Uh, he was released. Um, and, and Second Timothy is written after that period. Um, he's later executed by Nero. Um, so so kind of Nero's persecution really starts around 64. Um, and goes till his death in 67, pretty short. Uh, we have a guy by the name of Domitian where John is exiled. That's a little bit later, from 81 to 96. That's two. Uh, So uh, the third one would be Trajan from 108 to 117. That was a pretty notorious one. Uh, Two emperors back-to-back, kind of, it was all one uh, persecution of Antoninus, Pius, and Marcus Aurelius uh, from 140 to 180. Imagine that. Um, A guy by the name of Severus from 202 to 211, a guy by the name of Maximus. Actually, his name is Maximinus, which I love. It's like an oxymoron. It's like a little big. I don't know. Maximinus from 235 to 238. Uh, Decius from 249 to 251. Valerian from 253 to 260. Aurelian from 270 to 275. And that's just before this time period that we're talking about. And, and, And so here's all this soul's. of the the recently slain through these first nine persecutions and they're like how long and god says what one more one more and that's this guy ecclesian and and he's like nero he doesn't um he doesn't persecute actually he goes quite a little time before he starts to persecute Um, and he will begin his persecution it will be a 10-year persecution Remember back in when we were preaching through the the seven churches and talked about how there would be persecution 10 days. And and I said then and I, I repeat now that I don't know what that was referring to those 10 days. Was he referring to 10 persecutions or was he referring to 10 years? Because Diocletian's persecution is the 10th one, but it also goes from the year 303 to 313. So I don't know. I don't have the answers uh, to everything, but it seems to me that it's one of those two things or both. So Diocletian becomes emperor in in 284. I want to read a little bit. Um, We've been talking uh, about uh, uh, this book or series of books uh, written by Edward Gibbon and how interesting it is that a, a man who is an atheist ends up confirming what we're talking about over and again uh, in the Bible. I think that's maybe God's sense of humor, um, to, to take, he's like, I could take, but then people would really criticize it. I'm going to take an atheist and I'm going to prove the things I've written in the book of revelation, uh, and show there, there. Uh, so I just want to read, we're, we're going to have three quotes today from this book. Sometimes I'll just refer to it. Sometimes I'll quote from it, but uh, there are some quotes that I, uh, I like. So, so, um, in uh, let's see, he talked. He's he's here talking about um, when persecution started under Diocletian. So this is beginning in the year of uh, 303. He says the 20, on the 23rd of February, um, which coincided with a Roman festival, uh, was a, appointed to set the bounds. To the progress of christianity in other words they said we can't let this go any further kind of like the cold war and we were going to stop communism That, that that was how they viewed christianity at the earliest dawn of day the praetorian prefect that would be like a ambassador of some sort he was accompanied by several generals tribunes officers um and they went to the main church of Nicomedia. That's in northern Turkey, right on the Black Sea. The doors were instantly broken open, and they rushed into the sanctuary, and they searched in vain for some visible object of worship. In other words, they thought there would be all these idols because they were pagan. So they expected that church buildings looked like pagan church buildings, which they would eventually, but not yet. So they they searched in vain for an object of worship, and they were obliged then to just have to content themselves with committing to the flames, the only thing that they could find, which was a volume of scriptures. The ministers of Diocletian were followed by a numerous body of guards and pioneers who marched in order of battle and were provided with all the instruments of the destruction that they would use on fortified cities, and by their labor, this church building, which towered even higher than the imperial palace, in a few hours was leveled to the ground. And this begins his persecution. Um, and, and thousands of people died in this persecution. Um, here, let me read another one. Uh, this is interesting. And it, it is so many things that happened. I just kind of had to pick a, a couple But this has a particular interest uh, to me. He says this precedent, and I don't want to give all the backstory, but the the main uh, excerpt will will kind of speak for itself. He says, perhaps another uh, law which was issued in consequence of this first law appeared to authorize the governors and provinces to punish with death the refusal of Christians to offer up their sacred books. They were undoubtedly many persons who embraced this opportunity to obtain the crown of martyrdom. But there were also likewise many who gained an ignoble life by discovering and betraying the Holy Scriptures into the hands of the infidels. A great number of even of elders and bishops acquired by this criminal compliance the notorious name of traditors. You know what a traitor is? You've heard that word before? What does it sound like? Traitor. It was coined. The word traitor was originally coined. This is, by, is interesting to me. To refer to people who were Christians who saved their lives by giving up a copy of the scriptures. That's what a traitor is. Originally, Now, we use it in a broad term, but that's where the word originally was coined, in this persecution, while these last souls are waiting for this number to be sealed. So they're clothed in white. What does white mean to you? Purity. All right. You're reading my notes. All right. Um, purity is the first one. We're actually going to circle back around to this and talk about it later. What else has it meant? as we've been talking about things up to this point, what have we seen white refer to? Where have we seen white before? Very recent. We saw a white horse, right? What was white there? The victorious Rome. Right. And so so it's I believe also a reference to a coming victory that that john is is being told of and and, and this is all in connection we're going to see this as it goes on to the to the sixth seal these are these are kind of back to back these are parts of the same thing and then actually in in chapter seven he's going to refer back to i think these right here before we move on to the next thing he's going to kind of encapsulate all of this that's why i say we'll come back to the purity aspect of things in, in chapter chapter seven if we can get there today Um, What are they crying for, these souls? Avenged. Avenged. Now, does that feel to you like a Christian behavior? Does it? Okay. They're asking, take vengeance on our souls. However, revenge, avenge, whatever. They want justice. When, uh, when Stephen dies, what does he ask for? He says, "Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not lay this to their charge. He didn't ask for vengeance. I, I, I don't know as though this is literal, in other words. This is, it, I'm wondering. I'm just musing in my mind here. That this is not necessarily, as we know, these are symbolic pictures. These aren't literal. There aren't literal souls at the foot of a physical altar, right? But Jesus, a lot of time, uses this even this exact language in personification of his awareness of things. Right? The blood of Abel cries from the ground. There wasn't someone walking by and going, I hear something. This is blood over here. Is yelling, right? Or, or in uh, James, James talks about the wages which you these Christian men have held back from from their laborers. It cries out to God. God hears it. It comes up before God. It's like I don't think that's actually happening. I, like, oh, I hear those money. I was like, there's money in your vault. It's yelling. You haven't been paying, right? But it's it, it, it's a it's a metaphor for God's awareness of things going on. In other words, God is telling us. I'm aware of persecutions. It's like their souls are crying out for vengeance. And I hear it. And it's coming. This this they're robed with white. There's a coming victory. I am going to take vengeance. I don't think, at least at this point, I don't think they were crying out for vengeance. Kill those emperors. Right? I, don't, I don't think that's what is going on here. Yes. I I, 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 um, you know, the uh, the uh, idea of with the, the um, of where the dead you know, the, the men, yes, right, that this was, you know, this had certainly implications of that, you know, at the time, but it was also, it was also a uh, Mm-hmm. To Christ, yes. And, and then the, the justice of God with the vengeance that they were that they were looking. He said, let, "Let vengeance be mine, right? Whatever, whatever He interprets. Our vengeance in our way is is unrighteous, right? right? Vengeance to God is righteous. Mm-hmm. The way. I, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I I listen to that, and and I like your application. We just all we want to do is make sure that we're clear between what it's specifically referring to and the application that we're taking from it, right? That's an excellent application. That that God, even now, is looking on on our situation. That's really one of the applications to take away all this was written for our admonition, even if we're reading other people's mail. right? This is other people's mail. This literally was other people's mail. It was a letter written from Patmos to seven churches. It was not written to me. But the Bible says these things are written for our instruction. For our admonition, we gain application from these things. And certainly, the God who looked at their specific situation, these horrible persecutions that we cannot imagine. The stories, if you want to read awful stories, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a story of nightmares. You can, these things... are still admonition for us to say the God that understood and saw and took vengeance on that isn't, isn't blind to the things that we may suffer, even if we don't suffer the same degree. And there are people in our world today that suffer to the same degree. Look at the Coptic churches in Africa, things that happened down there, Sudan or in China, even in Mexico. Right. So so we're going to go then to the next seal here, the sixth seal. And we got this, this, uh, this fifth one's kind of on pause, right? He says, you're going to have to wait here just a second. So let's go to the next one. He says, I looked, and he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black, a sackcloth of hair and moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings and the earth and great men and rich men, and commanders and mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is the vengeance. Right? The fifth, you see how the fifth seal goes right into the sixth one? These are opened in succession. Boom, 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 boom. So we're, you notice we, we've kept that cliche up here. What are sun, moon, and stars, symbolically? What have we talked about? They're, they're not suns and moons. One of the problems in, in 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 Revelation is is what people want to take literally and what people want to take figuratively. Right? The sun is not going to fall to the earth, or 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 you know the, these pictures. That's impossible. It is physically impossible. Right? We we would melt as a planet long before it ever happened. There's a thing called Roche's limit in, in which. The, actual, the earth would actually explode long before any long larger body got close, right? we would just right? there's a, there's a, you can measure when based on the mass, when this would happen. Right. So, so that actually can't happen. But sun, moon and star, well, first of all, let's, let's back up. What is an earthquake? What's an earthquake? OK, tectonic shift. There's a, there's a major shift going to happen. It, it's upheaval in, in something. The order is completely changed. These are pictures of some major change that's getting ready to happen. It's not going to be the only one. We know it's figurative because multiple times, John has the stars falling. Like, well, if, if the stars fall later. Or stars fall now, then there's no stars to fall later. You know, it's like, how many times does does John have to wipe the stars out of the sky? Right, there's no more stars. Right, so we have to know that it is figurative. Sun, moon, and stars are people. They're prominent people. Right. If you were if you were a prominent person at this part, who would the sun be back then? Would it not be the emperor? Well, then who would a moon be? They didn't really have, you know, like the vice president. A general. They did actually have a vice president. What was the structure of Rome at this point? Does anybody know? Okay. Well I, At this point... Right. So it, you know, it existed, people, but in name only. Yeah. They, they were senators. Yeah. And, and so there were there were um, there were there was the emperor, and then there was uh, there were prefects. Okay. Yep. That were, uh, and then and then the, the rank structure of tribunes. Sure. And, and governors that you know all reported back to that central authority, and
1: then, then you had uh, then you had the Praetorians that were another force that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the, you had the military kind of being their own government. Yes, yeah, so, so you kind of had two of these structures going on at the same time. The actual structure of the empire was that it was divided into two. You had an east, which at this point was, um, it was in Antioch, like where they were first called Christians. That's the capital. It will later be in, uh, it'll later be over where Istanbul is, but they haven't gotten that far yet. In the West is in Rome, Diocletian ruled from Antioch, and he's the most powerful. The idea that the Roman Rome, Rome was nothing. The city. It was an overcrowded, disgusting place. Right? No one wanted to live in Rome. Now Diocletian came to power and he appointed another emperor. They called him Augustus. That was like the big that was the big emperor, right? You were an Augustus. And he said, okay, you're an emperor. Let's tell that you're the vice, you're like the vice president. You can be over in charge of yucky Rome. I live in Antioch. I live in the east, which was beautiful because of your connection to Persia. And, I mean, we don't think of that world as beautiful, but that was, it was gorgeous. I've been there and I've seen, I've gone into like the Sultan's palace and they have a museum. And like the guy had a riding canteen for a horse that just is covered with like emeralds. Like his canteen to drink from on his horse is just crusted with emeralds. It was, it was opulent. And so they wanted to live there. You get Rome. In fact, Maximian, this guy, won't even live at Rome. We talk about how, how low the Senate was. He moved to Milan. Right? That was a nice, that was a resort area, kind of. They didn't care about the Senate. They ignored the Senate. The Senate can do what they want. We just, we don't don't even go there. Well, we get these stars. Diocletian then said, we've got areas to govern. So he points Constantius I and Galerius I as Caesars. I know you think Caesar is like an emperor. Caesar ended up becoming kind of like a, he was an heir. He was an emperor in waiting. They're like stars, sort of like lower. You're going to get there, but you're not quite as bright yet. And, uh, and, and so, so there's four of these guys. And so we get to the sun darkening and the moon turning to blood and stars falling. What is this talking about? This is interesting. Well, the sun is darkened when he abdicates the throne. Diocletian is the first emperor to leave office of his own volition. He becomes a cabbage farmer, literally he on the day he just to illustrate that he is the prime governor of the empire on the same day he convinces maximian to do the same we're not going to completely turn him to black though because he came back when he was sure that <laughs> when that diocletian was safely farming cabbages he's going he's going to come back he's still emperor he's just kind of on vacation for a little while making sure so in the absence of that, we've got two guys. So Galerius, one who becomes the, the main guy, Constantius, one is up in England, and Galerius is in, is in Eastern Europe. So he appoints a guy by the name of Severus II and Maximin as Caesar's, thinking he, he and Constantius in, are, are the emperors now. we have seen a lot of stars here come out, but we're not done because Maximian comes back. Now we've got how many? Five. Five guys who all think they're emperors or emperors in waiting. It's going to get a little crowded, but we're not done. Because Maximian's son thinks my dad's an emperor again. I'm in line. So he throws his hat in the ring. That's Maxentius. So we've got six. And then just to kind of fill out, oh, there's a name I recognize. Constantius I dies, natural death, he just gets old. So the first star falls as his son, Constantine I, Constantine the Great, um, takes his place. Constantine I, oh, one more thing in there. Uh, Licinius um, replaces Severus, who was in there for two Two years before he was killed, that this and this is our field of stars here and, and everything. Constantine I marches to Milan and forces Maximian to kill to commit a suicide. And our one just kind of resigned. The other one turns to blood. This is not interesting. Well, next thing that happens, Galerius dies natural causes. Constantine I kills Maximian's son in battle, not like his father. Licinius I kills Maximian I. Our field is narrowing, isn't it? And then finally Constantine I meets Licinius in battle, and we are left with one emperor. And tell me if that doesn't look like our picture of sun and moon and stars. But I want to go back to our picture of victory. Because look, at, as we read the, 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 seventh, uh, the sixth seal, they're, they're running from the vengeance of who? Not from Constantine. They're running from vengeance of who? God. God is using Constantine. Constantine, not a great guy. He's a murderer. Uh, he murdered more than these people. He murdered his own son, his own wife, his own best friend. He's not a good guy, but he is loosely called the first Christian emperor (laughs) because he at least was a friend of a Christian and kind of had some friendly policies. The Edict of Milan forbid persecution of Christians. His mother was a Christian, Helena, to whatever extent. And paganism is about done. We're gonna have one more attempt. Okay, so he didn't personally persecute. He he and that does there is kind of a period where that comes in kind of towards the end, he kinda goes the other way. For the majority of his reign, you were free to choose what you want. He was what was called an Arian, which were people that that didn't believe in in in, that Jesus was equal with the Father. That was one of their views, and that's going to actually come about in about 10 years. This this argument is really going on. That's where the Council of Nicaea, right, Uh, the Nicene Creed, right. We believe in God the Father and about his son and the Holy Spirit and all that. That comes out of that in about 10 years and Constantine will oversee that council. Um, And yes, people did start persecuting what we would call Catholics or or Trinitarians. Um, So um, but God has taken vengeance on 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 paganism on these pagan kings. As I said, there's going to be one more attempt. A guy by the name of Julian the Apostate, he's a relative of Constantine's, he tries to reinstate Christianity, or, or excuse me, he tries to reinstate paganism, and it lasted for two years before he was killed. And that's it. Paganism is done. Paganism is over. Idol worship is is essentially, it from from about now on, it's going to be called mythology. That's the influence of Christianity. And it worked its way through until, it it spread out until someone became a mother of an emperor. I was just like, I will have the victory. I'm watching, I'm watching. (laughs) I've got it under control. There's just these few more martyrs. Now, martyrdom is not ended. It'll take its place, and Aryans will kill Catholics, and Catholics will kill Aryans, and it'll go on and on and on until somebody else starts killing other people, and we're going to have all sorts of martyrs. Martyrs not done. It's still going on right now. But he's speaking of a specific period of martyrdom here, under paganism, and that is done. Even, even Julian the Apostate didn't persecute Christians. He thought he could convince Christians. So he never had a, a a period of persecution. Yeah. Yeah. Um in terms of like, you know, murdering the son and the, and the wife, um, uh, because I, I I uh I'm wondering is that still with there I'm against that the Uh so, so no so um his son, it was kind of an Absalom situation, where uh, he kind of had a—he fa- had three favorite sons, um, and he, this one was gaining popularity, and he was not one of the three, and so he had to off them, because he was becoming as popular or more popular than, you know, or we could compare it to Saul and David, kind of the same thing, so he offed them because he thought this guy's going to take the empire and I don't want him to. So, and then the, uh, there's a possibility. I mean, it wasn't his, the, the, that one son's mother, it was the stepmother, but she kind of favored him. So there was a sudden discovery that she was having an affair and then she was killed, but that's considered dubious. (laughs) So that's, that's, I mean, up, for historian debate. So I want to get into this last little bit here, uh, which is long, but there's not a ton in this chapter. Uh, and he says, after these things, I fo- saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the sea, or the earth, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the East, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on our foreheads. Boom, we're back at those martyrs. So he's wrapping up and then foreshadowing the the near future. He says, and I heard the number of those sealed, (gasps) 144,000. Okay, we're going to get into that. Which is? Okay, this is, this is the shift that we talked about, the earthquake, the shift, the complete shift of the Roman Empire from a pagan empire. Every structure of the Roman Empire was now flipped. Every, every strong thing, what, what was the strong things of the Roman Empire? You're right, I should, have, I should have clarified. Was in idolatry. It was in idols. And now all of a sudden... You want, we talked about cancel culture last week. The Christians are free. Guess what's the first thing they started doing? Every statue, every pagan temple got pulled to the ground, leveled gone, canceled. everything, every structure, bishops are start going to have not quite yet, but they're going to have more power than political rulers. They, they start, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name now. Um, Eusebius becomes a, a, he was a well-known writer. He becomes a, a guy in Constantine's court with a lot of political influence, right? Everything is flipped with Constantine. The entire structure of the empire It might look similar with pre prefects and this and that, but it's completely upside down. One day you thought you were on the inn, and the next day you come to work and you're like, you're not popular. Your whole thing is gone. Just like that. With the death of a emperor in Milan. This earthquake. We're going to see more earthquakes. So, um, so I want to stop right here uh, for a second. We get these four winds. What's a wind? A, w- a wind. Four winds. He says these. There's these four winds being held back, held back. I, I don't. I don't get the feeling he's talking about light breezes. <laughs> There's a storm coming. What do you think of when you think of four winds? That's what I get. I, I get this destruction coming from all points of the compass. God still got some vengeance in mind for something. And we're going to see why. Um, <clears throat> We've seen the decline of Rome. We've seen a shift in Rome. Now we're going to see the destruction of Rome. Complete annihilation. By the time we're done with these four winds, the Empire of Rome will be known as the Kingdom of Italy. That's the destruction that's coming. And it will take place very, very rapidly. But we want to put that on hold. There's two groups. We all focus on the what? Um, We focus on 144,000. But how many groups are here? There's two groups. There's the 144,000, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the 144. But there's another group. What's that group? A multitude without number. They're in the same location. So, this idea that there's going to be 144,000 people in heaven, we also have an innumerable number. So, we're going to have to fit them both in there. What does 144 draw your mind to? Twelve and the Bible in Revelation will use this picture a number of times, almost exactly uh, towards the end when he's talking about the holy city. Twelve and twelve. Twelve was the foundation, which was built on what? The twelve tribes. And there's twelve gates, which were the twelve apostles. So that's, there's something to do with apostles and, and then we get this, uh, or apostles and the patriarchs or tribes and and a thousand. How do they use the word a thousand? Do you know how they use the word a thousand? World much smaller. They used it like we use the word a million. I've got a million things to do today. No one's ever sat down and written a list of a million things to do today. Right. Yes. 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 Right. The world was smaller. So a thousand is a thousand. Like, wow. Millennia. Right. So so we get into these things, and it wasn't really that dramatic. It was just you know a thousand, a large number. It was, but it's definable. It, it's it's is 144,000. It, it's limited. It, it's not innumerable like this other group. That group is huge. And so I want to get into really briefly, uh, because uh, we don't, there's a lot of text here. Um, I'm going to have to save this for next week, because it will still take us a little bit too long, but I want to end with some application here. Uh, It's interesting that all of this is written in the past tense. None of it's happened. Then I saw, and this happened. Why is that? Why do you think it's written in the past tense when it hasn't happened yet, from what John is writing? What's that? Okay, he's writing it, having seen it. I saw this thing happen. But with God, it's already happened. God doesn't live in my time frame. And when God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And it might as well be past tense as far as God's concerned. Imagine you're, you're John and, and you live in the middle of a persecution at the beginning of this time period. You live in the second persecution. And, and you're here and there's going to be ten more or eight more, whatever. God says, yeah, it's already happened. I've already taken revenge. It just hasn't happened yet (laughs) in in that sense. For you, it hasn't happened yet. For me, it's already happened. It's already done and gone and sealed. It's a seal. I've already approved it. It will happen. That's amazing. And we look at things we're so afraid of, uh, like things are uncertain. It's not uncertain. Whatever's been uncertain. It's already been approved, stamped, and we're getting through it. Yeah. yeah it's to think of, you know, yes, been- right. right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. The light that reaches you is, you know. Cold. Yeah, old light. But I think it's Important, I I do want to look at one thing. He talks about why. What were they slain for? They were slain for the word of God. Chapter 6, verse 9, he says, They were slain for the word of God. I want to end with one admonition, that that we suffer for the right reason. And, And Christians, I think, get this wrong sometimes. We have a cause, and it's a stated cause. It's the word of God. They didn't suffer because they drove a bus into an abortion clinic. I'm not saying that anyone here would do that, but people have because they mix up their cause. We might not be that dramatic, but that starts when a person misunderstands their cause. I'm not saying that these things are improper causes. They're just not the cause. They didn't suffer because they marched for civil rights. I'm not saying that's a bad cause. I'm just saying that's not why they suffered. They didn't suffer for the second amendment. They didn't suffer for all of these things. They suffered for the word of God. And this is what I want to challenge you. You only get one life to suffer with. You don't want to waste your suffering on a, on a cause that's temporary. These things are temporary causes. When I die and when this world is over, God's not going to call into account, let's see uh, it says here, Andrew, that you died uh, at a at a patriotic rally. It, it says here that you died marching uh, in, you know in Alabama for for a noble cause. God doesn't care about those things. Those things are dead and gone. All of the things we get up in arms about God's these guys were clothed with white. For suffering for the word of God, that is eternal. Souls are eternal. That's the important thing. We've got to keep the cause the cause. Our lives are so precious to God. Don't waste that suffering on something temporary. We're going to close there.